Good morning, everybody. Oh, I'm going to unmute my microphone here. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to From the Deep End today. Of course, it is June the... I say, of course, it is like I know, and then I have to look. It is June the 8th. It is good to be with you here uh, this morning. Uh, let me know how the audio is. Uh, Travis says sound. Does that mean the sound is... Um, Good or bad, Travis? Um, give me, give me something there if you would, because we did try, uh, tried something a little different today, trying to uh, get the sound to operate. Uh, good, good. So we we are running on a different uh, uh, platform today. Um, I it, I don't know if it was something going on the Streamyard or um, not, but um, that was um. um Something that was uh, causing some problems, but I noticed on the audio stream, the podcast stream that we do, the um, the audio was um, coming through well over there, um, but for some reason, uh, it was not um, uh, happening through the browser. So I switched to a different platform that we kind of have in uh, in reserve in the background, um, and that's what we are using this morning to uh, to get to, to get the show going. So seems like it's doing okay, and that is good news. Uh, that is uh, working that way. So um, uh, anyway, let's go ahead and start talking about the um, the program today. Of course, this uh, during this first hour, we sit around and we talk about your Bible questions for the day. Um, and uh, if you have any, you can go put those in. Uh, we did have um, a couple of questions left over from the program yesterday that I want to um take care of um, and uh, address them just uh, briefly as we get started this well I say briefly you know I never do anything briefly like that right uh, but uh, at least uh, address them a little bit here in the um, uh, in the in the opening uh, we were talking about the topic of the um, the Holy Spirit and we'll be back there doing that again here uh, just for a few minutes uh, and then we will move on to any other questions that you have for the uh, rest of the show. So that's what we do for the first hour. And of course, in the second hour, by now, you know, we do a, a textual Bible study and we have been working our way or starting to work our way into the book of First Peter. We're still in the opening verses of that um, of that uh, a good book. And we will pick up there in the uh, second hour of the program today and do that. Uh, nothing for Connect tonight. Of course, you know, it's Wednesday night and we recognize that most of you uh, have churches that you go to that have midweek services and because of that we try to stay off of the um, um, time frame that that you would be in that so that's why we have never really run any Wednesday night programming but do not forget that Labeth Brewer is um, going to be running the um, her, her program her, her podcast the um, mindful soul I believe that is two o'clock eastern time here this morning so all that being said uh, let's turn our attention back to the things that we were studying um, um, uh, studying uh, sorry just notice the base a little vibration uh, didn't change the audio settings now it may be coming through because we're using a different platform it may be processing the audio uh, a little bit differently let me make a slight adjustment here um, see if that's it or maybe, maybe Travis, maybe the problem is I just have a little reverb in my voice. Maybe I got that, you know, that going on this morning. 
I don't know, man. Uh, let's look, let's go back to our question from yesterday. Um, just a second to pull it up here. I thought I had it up and then I, I lost sight of it. Um, it was a question from, um, was it Sue? I think the question may have been from Sue. Um, about a doctrine known, well, the, she doesn't actually use this terminology, but if you ever get into a study about different things relating to the Holy Spirit, you will sometimes come across this language. Um, um, Sue said, and I can't put it up on screen because it was on the other other uh, other thing yesterday. Sue says, uh, from Brother Wayne Berger, uh, he says there are three measures of the Holy Spirit baptism. Uh, the Pentecost measure, the house of Cornelius laying on the hands from the apostles, the indwelling, and then Acts, Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, Acts 5, uh, 32. Um, um, the, um, the doctrine there that is expressed there um, is known as the measures of the spirit. All right. And I've never talked to Wayne personally about it. I, I know, you know, Wayne's a um, excellent Bible student and, um, I, I suspect he and I would have a lot of similarity, a lot of commonality in our, in our beliefs on these matters. So it's not something I would um, have any particular issues with with Wayne. But um, let me let me speak not about what Wayne may have said. Let me talk about the the doctrine of the measures of the Spirit more broadly. All right, um, Wayne is of an age. Let me just say it that way, in which that terminology was very common. Um, some of the kind of mid 20th century preachers, at least when they came, obviously Wayne's still around, so he's not a mid 20th century preacher, but when, when, when the, when the elder generation of preachers that is out there today came through schooling, uh, and kind of developed their, their, um, um, vocabulary, their terminology for describing about things, describing things rather, the terminology measures of the spirit was very much a, um, a, a a real thing. Uh, it was a primary way of describing the different works of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Um, the doctrine of the measures of the Spirit is taken from, uh, or the basis for it is um, taken from a passage over in in John chapter three. Give me a second. I rebooted my system last night and did not load up my Bible program this morning, so. Give me just a second while that loads. There it goes. Um, and turn with me in your Bibles or just look here on the screen as I get it set up here in just a second. Um, over to John chapter 3. I need to bring up the King James to start with. Old King James language is the one, you know, primarily that when this doctrine was prevalent, or at least this formulation of this doctrine was prevalent, uh, the Old King James was the... Um, uh, the primary version that people were using. And because of that, um, there is a rendering of John chapter three that is um, pretty significant in that in that um, in that time frame. Um, so if we go here to John three, um, sorry, this isn't all new to me here a little bit. Um, Let's just go with that one for now. What about this one? Does this one work? Might make it too small. Um, let's go with that one. Um, 
in John chapter three, uh, right down there at the end of the chapter, uh, we're talking about Jesus. Um, we're talking about, um, uh, you know, verse start up in verse 28. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am, the, but, but that I am sent before him. Uh, he, ha, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom, friend of the bridegroom. He must increase, I must decrease. So John the Baptist is talking here. Uh, he that cometh from above is above all. And he that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that is from heaven is above all. And he that hath seen and heard he, that, that he tes- testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. So start with me here and notice how John brings this to a close. He says, he that hath received his testimony hath set his seal that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the spirit by measure unto him. Okay. Um, That verse is generally taken to be referring to the Christ. And as such, that verse referring to the Christ, um, there is a statement here, if you just read the last verse in the King James, the last phrase in the King James, for he giveth not the spirit by measure unto him. So the thought is that since this is Jesus, that God gave the, God gave the spirit to Jesus in a measureless sense, a full measure of the Holy Spirit. And then from there, you state that those who followed after Jesus received the Spirit in subsequently smaller measures. And so you would have then either the baptismal, now, either the baptismal or apostolic measure. Um, some people will refer to it as the laying on of hands measure, where you could work miraculous things, you were given, uh, given access to miraculous powers, and so on. But that, uh, and you could pass the 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 the, the um, um, spirit on to other people. Next down from that, when people describe the work of the spirit in, in this under this understanding, is that um, there was the uh, miraculous measure. Those people who had the the, vari- the variety of spiritual gifts. Uh, talked about in the New Testament, did not have the ability to pass on the gifts, uh, but rather just had the ability to work gifts. Uh, normally, uh, on, under this view, people had one gift. Uh, some, that's not universally the, the, the belief, but that is often uh, what is what is tied there. Um, but um, it was the, the ability to work miraculous gifts. And then finally, you would then have the ordinary measure which is the ordinary, non-miraculous indwelling, sometimes, sometimes referred to as the literal, personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is uh, given to every, every believer at the point of their conversion at baptism. And so there you have a definition of the measures of the Spirit. Uh, and that was a very common way of describing, it, uh, describing the Holy Spirit's work uh, as is characterized in the New Testament. And it was a very common way uh, particularly in you know the Wayne's generation and sometime before that. Uh, today, you will find a very much smaller uh, a group of people who directly hold to that doctrine. Uh, or, no, that's not true. Uh, 
you will find a very much smaller group of people who use that terminology to describe that that doctrine. Uh, I I almost um, almost never hear it these days. Um, I'm, I say almost never. It's not completely never, but it's it's very rare that you will hear hear somebody uh, in describing the work of the Holy Spirit go through every portion of the measures doctrine. All right, so it's there are still plenty of people out there that believe those, those are the different ways the Holy Spirit worked. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the apostles, the New Testament prophets, and then us today. Um, and that still still out there by a lot. A lot of people have kind of abandoned it because, frankly, a lot of um, uh, brethren, as they talk about the Holy Spirit in the church today, um, have just kind of thrown off all of the the uh, expositional principles that that led us to, to some beliefs about the work of the Holy Spirit, and they've just gone full on uh, evangelical. In my, my opinion, they're they're running headlong down a road of of uh, of mysticism and ultimately leading to leading to Calvinism. I, I don't see an off ramp. Uh, if I live a, a full life expectancy, I suspect by the um, um, I suspect by the time we get to the in the end of my what would be a re- regular life cycle, um, there will be Member, but there will be a, a significant number of preachers uh, living quite peaceably among churches of Christ who believe in, if not total depravity, a, a doctrine that I can't tell the difference between. I, I just, once you start down that path, frankly, there's no off ramp, and I believe we have started down that path headlong. In 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 that path or on that path, there's no need for no need for the restraints of the doctrines of uh, measures of the spirit because that's what measures of the spirit does. It limits the application of certain passages. Um, and I maybe I can come up with one here and show it to you as I, as I think 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 through this here for just a second. My primary problem with the doctrine of the measures of the spirit is simply this. If we go back to the screen here and um um. I turn that off. Oh, I don't know what I did. Sorry. Sorry. New platform. Still learning all the button presses. Um, my primary problem with the doctrine is not so much that the different works that are recognized under the doctrine of the measures of the spirit. Um, it's not that. It's not that I, you know, I have no problem saying that the that 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 obviously Jesus is able to do things without permission, without seeking authority that that maybe the apostles could not do he is the son of god after all um and it's it's clear that the the apostles had abilities that uh, the regular prophets of the new testament had and it's clear that the prophets of the new testament had had abilities that we don't have i'm perfectly fine recognizing those different roles but i don't know that they're i don't know that they should be called measures and here's here's one of the reasons for it because john 334 is the textual basis or the whole concept of the doctrine of measures of the spirit, all right? But look very carefully at the end of John 3.34. Those words, if you'll notice, are in italics. Those words do not appear in the original manuscripts from which these verses are translated. So if you just read ESV on John 3.34, here's what you'll read. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without measure. That's an entirely different meaning to the verse. 
by adding those two words, which are not in the Greek text, uh, you make it specific that it is that it is only unto Jesus that God gave the Spirit without measure. Um, if you take John three thirty four um, from the ESV, now you have a general statement that God simply does not give His Spirit without measure or with measure. Every time he gives the Spirit, he gives the fullness of his Spirit. And that is the reason that when he, is, he, whoever that is, is sent from God, he utters the words of God. He doesn't utter his own words. He doesn't utter a blend of words. When he who is sent from God utters his words, the words that he utters are God's word, God's words, because the message is without measure. It is fully given by God. And that's what I think is the proper understanding here. I think it is interesting that this passage, which is supposed to be uh, referring to Jesus, um, the ESV does not capitalize the he, nor does the old King James. Um, you know, I, I, that, that, that means anything. But the point is, the... Um, Doctrine here is stated, I believe, generally. And here the King James translators were trying to help. They thought this was an ellipsis. They thought that, that the words unto him were implied from the, the start about the he. And, they were, and, and then we came along and said, okay, that must, apply, must be applicable to, uh, to, uh, to Jesus. And so it's only to Jesus that the, that the Spirit is given. But if you don't take that as an ellipsis, if you take that as a general statement of truth, then what you have is not a verse which affirms the doctrine of the measures of the Spirit. It is a, it is a verse which explicitly excludes the doctrine of the measures of the Spirit. And I tend to think the newer translations get it right. Part of the reason I think, I think that is when you read about the, the, the Holy Spirit, in the rest of the New Testament, okay? Um, let's, for example, um, um, uh, Acts chapter 2. Let's just go to Acts chapter 2. I was trying to think of the phrase attached to Jesus, but I don't have one off the top of my head. When they begin to speak in tongues on the day of Pentecost, they are full of the Holy Spirit, right? So there is the apostolic measure. They are full of the Holy Spirit. So this doesn't appear to be some measured outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This outpouring of the Holy Spirit is full. But if you go, say, to an, an apostolic a prophet during the first century, um, here is Stephen, not an apostle, so does not have what is referred to as either the laying on of hands or the baptismal or the apostolic measure of the Spirit. Doesn't have that, 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 that layer. But he is still said to be, as he gazes up into heaven and sees Jesus, full of the Spirit. All right? And then as you go and you, the Ephesians 5.18, um, here just ordinary Christians, as, as we typically apply the verse, do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So now you have all three. Okay, you've got Jesus who's full of the Spirit. That would be the fourth one. The apostles are full of the Spirit. 
the non-apostolic prophets are full of the Spirit, and the ordinary measure, we're told, is full of the Spirit. Well, where, well where's the measures of doctrines? Where, where's the doctrine of measures, rather? It's not there. Every single time, no matter what role somebody plays within the kingdom, the biblical response to that is they're full of the Spirit. So I don't think John 3.34 supports the doctrine or, or supports the, I don't think the language of John 3.34 supports the, the segmented understanding of measures that comes from the application of that verse to Jesus. I don't think that's sufficient textual basis to start the concept. And then I don't see any variance, any deviation in the language of the rest of the New Testament would suggest that any, it would, that would suggest that um, uh, anything but people who had access to the Holy Spirit were always full of the Spirit. So I, from a from an expositional standpoint, I I can't get myself to hold to the to the view of the measures of the Spirit simply because um, I, I can't I can't find it. Now I can find differences and varieties of roles within within the uh, within the New Testament. I can find that clearly there are those who had different different. Uh, 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 abilities, different, uh, you know, first round, I, I was going to pull up the text, but you don't need it. First Corinthians 12, it's one spirit, but, a, you know, a variety of administrations, Ephesians chapter four, that some of the church apostles, apostles, uh, apostles, uh, uh, prophets, uh, evangelists, pastors, teachers, and so on. Uh, so obviously there are different roles and those different roles or in those different roles, different uh, uh, characteristics of the spirit's power were, were uh, uh, evidenced. The true the signs of a true apostle, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, had to be had to carry or had to be had to accompany the work of a true apostle. So clearly there were role differences, but everybody who filled their role, regardless of what that role is, um, was said to be full of the spirit. All right. Uh, one last thought of that before I go on to um, uh, some of your comments that you all uh, have been making. Um, so I don't really have a I don't really have a strong doctrinal problem with the doctrine of measures of the spirit. Uh, and I see somebody down there. Um, 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 no, that's a different topic. Okay. Um, that's a different topic. Sorry, I lost my train of thought there. That happens sometimes when I'm looking at the chat. Um, and what was I saying? I was saying something. I don't really have a problem with the doctrine of the measures of the spirit because the actual doctrine that's being taught I can find individuals in each of those roles having access to different abilities uh, that are empowered by the Holy Spirit. But I don't think the roles is, is, is equivalent to measures or amounts of the Spirit. I think that's a wrong conceptual uh, thinking about it. Uh, so, and so that's why I steer clear of the language. If I have a problem with it at all, it is in this regard, all right? Uh, let, let me pull back up, pull Ephesians 5. I think that's where we just left off. That's as good as any verse to talk about it. Um, in Ephesians chapter 5, in verse number 18, we have that, that phrase that I was just reading. Um, and so there is that phrase, don't, be drunk, don't get drunk with wine for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, uh, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, 
giving thanks always and for everyone to, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for, for Christ. Okay, that's the whole, whole context there. A typical way of viewing this verse and several verses like it, I'll show you one more here in just a moment, um, is this. It is to create a duality of uh, exposition, interpretation, to verses that deal with the Spirit. Now, sometimes people don't even use the term, who, who, sometimes people, excuse me, who don't use the terminology measures of the Spirit talk about verses as if they believe the doctrine of measures. Have you ever heard somebody say about a verse talking about the Spirit's work with the early church? Say something along the lines of this. In the first century, that meant prophecy. But for us today, that means, and then some kind of ordinary measure type, you know, that, that, that means a non-miraculous work of the Spirit. That means the personal indwelling of the Spirit. For example, in this verse, somebody might say, don't get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so somebody might say, if somebody recognizes that this phrase filled with the Spirit all through the book of Acts, if you look at it, every time somebody is filled with the Spirit, something prophetic, something miraculous happens after it. They were all filled with the Spirit. They began to speak in tongues. Stephen was filled with the Spirit. He gazed up in heaven and saw Jesus. Uh, uh, I believe it's there in Acts 13 where, where uh, 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 Paul um, uh, sees Elymas, wants to strike him blind, and he's filled, he's filled with the Spirit and strikes him blind, um, and so on. All of that language that you'll find all through it. So it doesn't take a whole lot of biblical insight to read through the book of Acts and understand Luke had a very specific way that he used this phrase. Uh, you know, the, the John was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, and, and so on. All of that all of that language is there over and over again. It's pretty easy to find. So somebody takes that forward and says, okay, this, this phrase filled with the Spirit clearly has some kind of prophetic or miraculous attachment to it. And so we can be, we, and so they might look at here and say, okay, in the first century, uh, these Christians were filled with the Spirit, perhaps in some miraculous way. But what it means for us is, and then they'll go to from Colossians, from Ephesians 5, they'll go to Colossians 3 and verse number 16 and 17, kind of the, the parallel example of that verse, and they'll say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in, 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 a, uh, uh, in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms. Okay? See the parallel there? Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourself in psalms and spiritual songs. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. See, in the first century, they were filled with the Spirit through a miraculous operation of the Holy Spirit. But for us, what that means is we have the word of God dwelling us in the, in, in the, in, in the uh, uh, personal indwelling of the Spirit to help us along as we sing. So every verse has a dual meaning. Depending on your role, whether it's an apostolic role or an ordinary measure role, the verse can mean either thing. The verse either can mean both miraculous and also non-miraculous. So for every verse, there is a dual meaning to the verse. That's a very common, uh, even to this day, even if somebody's not using the terminology measures, that is still a very common interpretation of, of verses relating to the Holy Spirit. 
and that's an answer. That is that that is a, an answer that we you know somebody asked yesterday about the gift of the Spirit in Acts two thirty eight. Um, uh, my I had an instructor in school. Um, um, it was Brother Curtis Cates who held the position that the gift of the Spirit and his his phraseology, if I, as best as I can remember to um, uh, to to characterize it for you, his phraseology for what the gift of the Spirit was is salvation and all of its attendant blessings. Because he believed the promise of verse 39 was the Abrahamic promise, not the promise of the Holy Spirit. Right? So what he has here is salvation and all of its attendant blessings. That's what the gift of the Spirit is. So he that believeth and is baptized, that's Mark chapter 16, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you will be saved, and you will be given all of the blessings of the Christian, which, of course, come through the person of the Spirit. And that will apply to all flesh, because the Abrahamic promise is to you and to your children and all that are far off. It's to, it's to, it's to both Jew and Gentile. So every person who, is, who repents and is baptized has their sins forgiven, and then gets all of the attendant blessings of the Holy Spirit and so on that, that are promised to the Christian, okay? Well, he, he's right about that. I don't think that's the, the right exposition of this passage because I think the promise is very, to me, to me it's very clear, the promise is the, um, uh, uh, the promise of the Spirit from verse 33. But, you know, if you go with the Abrahamic promise, if I, if I give him his premise that verse 39 is the Abrahamic promise, I'd have a pretty hard time arguing against him. Um, I probably probably still wouldn't agree with them, but answering the argument would be very very difficult at best. So, what's all that mean? Well, what all that means is this: that, and I I don't remember Brother Cates held to the to the measures doctrine. I can't ever recall having that discussion with him or hearing him discuss it in class. So I, I can't. I'm have to stop talking about him at the moment, at least him directly, because I don't remember. Um, but. The, the, that concept or concepts like that are based upon measures doctrine, whether the, whether the terminology is used or not. The idea that each verse can refer to any work of the Holy Spirit necessitates a measures doctrine. So everybody who is a Christian gets the Holy Spirit, but how the Spirit manifests itself in your life is dependent upon the measure that you get. And since the only measure act active today is the ordinary ordinary indwelling of the Holy Spirit, guess what the gift of the Holy Spirit in today's world is? Well, it is salvation, or, or you, know, you will receive salvation and the attendant blessing of the Holy Spirit, which is what? It would be the personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But in the first century, if you happened to be an apostle, you would receive the apostolic measure. <clears throat> if you ended up being a, a, a prophet, you would get the, you would get the uh, laying on of hands measure. See, and, th- and that duality, I like to call it, is a great way to um, uh, handle some of the complica- complications of uh, the exposition of some of these passages on, on the Holy Spirit. Um, my problem is I think it's completely wrong. I don't believe these verses are dual verses. Um, you know, when, when you get to, to Acts chapter 2 and verse number 4, they were all filled with the Spirit. They began to speak in tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. Those are inspired prophets. I'm um, doing this off the top of my head on the fly, 
but I think the next time uh, the phrase is used is in uh, Acts 4, it's 431. I was thinking it's 432, but it's 431. When they had prayed, <clears throat> the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Well, that sounds like maybe something's going on there. And they were all filled with the Spirit. Oh, okay. That's kind of like Acts 2. Very similar to Acts 2, in fact. And look what happens. They're filled with the Spirit, and they begin to they begin to speak the Word of God or continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. Well, wait a minute. They were filled with the Spirit, and they began to preach. Ta-da! There we are again. Um, you know, the next time I think you'll find the phrase is in the in the um, selection of the seven men, good repute. Uh, therefore, brothers, pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. Well, what's that mean? I don't know. How about verse five? Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Well, what's that mean? I don't know. How about we keep reading? Stephen, a man full of grace and of power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Well, that all sounds very familiar. And then lastly, about Stephen in chapter seven, we just looked at it in verse 55. But he, full of the Spirit, gazed up into heaven and saw the glory of God. Well, that's not ordinary. That's not something you and I can do. Maybe because he was full of the Spirit. Okay. And let's go back to our passage over in Ephesians. Um, Ephesians chapter 5. Verse number 18. Don't be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And ESV has addressing. King James has speaking. Speaking in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Once again, you're filled with the Spirit, and you have the ability to speak spiritual messages. It's almost like that phrase has a particular meaning to it. So my view of this passage is this is talking about inspired song. And in terms of and in terms of a direct application, I can't do this because I'm never going to be inspired. But can I speak the words of God? John 3:34, absolutely I can because he's given me <clears throat> in the revelation. <clears throat> excuse me. He has given me all of the words. I know all of his words. They're, they're, they're contained in that leather-bound volume that's in front of me. Well, actually, that's not true. I don't have a leather-bound volume in front of me this morning. It's it's right back there on the shelf. Um, but it's in that digital device, electronic device that's in front of me. I have them all. I have it without measure. He's given to me everything that pertains to the life and godliness. So I don't need to be filled with the Spirit to speak in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We have people in our audience. We have people all that, that come on with us, uh, like Deb and, and Paul and, and Shane and, and some of those other people that have been here. They do this all the time. They're not filled with the Spirit in some kind of miraculous sense, but they know the Word of God, and the Word of God dwells in their hearts. And they are able to write psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and they do it at, a, at, a, at, a, at an amazing rate. So, you know, we, we accomplish the same exact, exact thing. So anyway, um, let me turn my attention back here to, uh, to the comment section. I told you I'd do that briefly. It only took me 40 minutes. <laughs> uh, let's see what we have. Um, got a lot of things to scroll back up here for. I think if I put that chat overlay back up, it starts over fresh, doesn't it? Yeah, it doesn't put up the, the, his, the historical chat, which I need. Um, uh, Jonathan asks, um, going back to the discussion yesterday on the Holy Spirit, I hold to the personal indwelling view and I know good brethren who hold the representative view, and I completely understand the thinking. I respect the view. Uh, should lines of fellowship be drawn? And it cut off from me there, Jonathan. But I'm ask, I guess you're asking me, should lines of fellowship be drawn over these different views of the spirit? I'm, I'm going to have to fill in the blank there. 
Um, I have a very simple uh, 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 metric on, on or not metric, but a, a very simple model. Let me just show that word for when I think lines of quote unquote fellowship need to be drawn as it relates to uh, doctrines of the Holy Spirit. Um, I have two guardrails, one on each side of me. One side is charismaticism. If you teach charismatic doctrine in in the in the first or in the in the modern day church, and and, and that means you believe in the charismata, the, the gifts are still available in some form. Uh, I, I'm going to part fellowship with you. I can't go there with you because now what you've done is you have. It's not just a matter of we have an expositional difference. We have, you know, these are these can be complex issues. I think they're pretty simple, but these can be complex issues. And that good brethren will have different ways of reasoning about them. Are fine. Like I said, you know, I'm I guarantee if I sat down and had a conversation, we, we, Sue's question was about Wayne Berger. Okay, Wayne's a friend of mine. Been on the program several times. Taught the Book of Acts with us, uh, and he taught what he, te- he te- believes about the Holy Spirit all through the Book of Acts. I have never felt a moment's need to correct Wayne Berger, and nor would I presume to. Man's been man's been studying the Bible longer than I've been alive. Um, so no, I'm not about to draw lines of fellowship with Wayne. And if we actually got down to the doctrine of the matter, in, in the end of the day, doctrine about what the Holy Spirit is doing today, even though I even though I think he does believe a measures view, uh, Sue's question says that, and I think I've heard I think that's what I heard him teach. It's been a couple of years now. But I think that's what I heard him teach as he went through Acts chapter two uh, in the, in his Acts class that he did for digital Bible study. Um, when he got when he and I sat down and started talking, here here's what to, you know today's Wednesday morning at at eight forty three in the morning. What's the Holy Spirit doing for me right now? I'm going to guess even though we frame the discussion differently, Wayne and I are probably in exactly the same spot in terms of the actual benefit that the Holy Spirit provides a Christian. So why would I why would I have any need to correct him? Number one, I, you know I don't agree with this terminology, but the end doctrine we're we're in the same place. So let's have the discussion. Let, let's you know let iron sharpen iron, but there's no reason to get grumpy about it and, and start drawing lines of fellowship over it because we're in the same place. Okay, he he can say amen probably to most things I say, and I can say amen to most things he says. There shouldn't be any friction there, and, and as far as I know, there's not. Okay, so while I disagree with the terminology and the framework. I don't disagree with the end result. Um, so, but if you believe in the active gifts of the Spirit today, well, now we we don't have the same we don't have the same benefit. So we we are in an entirely different place. So on the one side, it's charismatic doctrines. The other side is Calvinistic doctrine. Uh, if you believe in depravity and the need of the direct operation of the human heart to um, uh, cause you to obey and and so on, which by the way, this is not really a spectrum; it's a circle. Because charismatic doctrine and Calvinistic doctrine, as you get to the extremes of those doctrines, have to blend back together. Because if you if you have if you believe in um, uh, uh, full on Calvinism, how is it that any man can ever preach the gospel? Because his spirit is corrupted. The only way that he can preach the gospel is to have the is to have the uh, redemptive work of the Holy Spirit upon him, and that means at some level. The Holy Spirit is inspiring the language of this "quote unquote" depraved preacher, because he, he is still by uh, uh, heredity still depraved. It is only the Spirit and the imputed righteousness of Jesus which allows him to continue. So it's not really a spectrum; it's a circle. These doctrines connect: charismatic doctrine and 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 Calvinistic doctrine 
connect at the at the extremes. And when I said earlier, I believe we are full on a path going down that evangelical road of doctrines of depravity. I will guarantee you, I'm no prophet, but this is just the logical consequence of the doctrine. If you start going down that that side of the circle toward full-on Calvinism, you will necessarily start to bring in charismatic works of the Holy Spirit. You cannot separate the two at the extreme. You cannot, and we will do it sooner or later. That's where I would start drawing lines of fellowship because I believe that's where the Bible would do it. Uh, But in general, most of the different views I've heard all of my life growing up and in my days of preaching about the Holy Spirit, I don't agree with all of them, but I can I can live quite peaceably and, and happily among them. Um, so uh, let's see what we have here. Um, um, here I go, here I go, scrolling down through the comments here. Um, uh, Jonathan says not necessarily hold the, the doctrines of the measures of the doc, uh, the doctrine of the measures, but so on. Um, Christine says, is that a reference to prophecy? Boy, that would have been a timely question for me to answer when it when it showed up, because I have no idea what I was saying. What time, does that get a timestamp on it? That was about 820-something, 823, 824. Mm, what was I talking about at 823, 824? Um, maybe John 334. Uh, and, and that would be my guess. If, if that's where, if we were still in John 3 at that point of the class, you know, he gives the spirit without measure. I would absolutely say that's a that's a um, a, a statement of prophecy. Um, so may, I hope that's in the ballpark of what you were asking me about. I got a question from Melissa there I need to come back to, I think. Um, let me see if I scroll down here and see if there's any other thing. Um, um, Travis talking about that concept of duality. <clears throat> uh, I've got a couple of articles I've written about that. I, I think it's a really important concept to get. Uh, talk, I think I talked about it some in the book that I wrote, but I've got an article or two on it that I probably should post somewhere at some point. Uh, maybe I'll put them up on the website if y'all will remind me to do that. Um, but um, I, it, it's a it's a it's an it's it's an assumed thing. Uh, it's never really that I can see proven where people prove that that's what that verse is. It's just a kind of a assumed position that that's a valid expositional approach to passages that deal with the Holy Spirit. Um, and I, and as I said earlier, I think it's built on the framework of um, a framework of the um, uh, doctrine of measures. Um, Douglas saying he's um, feeling feeling great, just feeling along. Uh, mm-hmm, okay, uh, I'm gonna skip reading that one. Um, uh, Travis talking about the being filled with the Spirit always enables. That the individual do what you cannot do in his own first century and above. I would agree with that completely, Travis. Sometimes it's tongues, sometimes it's singing, but sometimes it's seeing a heavenly vision. But there's always some kind of prophetic or divine influence that goes along with it every time you uh, come across it. Um, and um, let me see where we are. I think that's pretty well. Let me go back up here to Melissa's comment earlier, make sure I understood it properly. Um, what time is it? We got 840, 8.48. You know, I got to quit being proud. I can't read the clock on my own computer screen. I might as well go ahead and put those things back on, right? Um, my glasses are broken. See, there's a the problem. And they're crooked because that little thing right there is broken. And I, and I never, they're always crooked on my face when I look at myself in the screen. I probably should just get some new glasses. That, that would be the solution to the problem. The solution is not where the, stop wearing the glasses because they're crooked on your screen and then it bugs me as I look at it. 
because I like it. I like some symmetry, and, and they're not symmetrical when they're broken like that. So the solution would not be stop wearing your glasses. The solution would be buy new glasses. That that would be the solution. But I haven't done that yet. Um, <laughs> but anyway, apparently as much as I like symmetry, I like not buying things that even that much more. But to Melissa's question, anyway, uh, in my 33 years of being a Christian, I have never heard talk of God's providence. I really appreciate hearing brethren on here and other resources talk about it. So that is not really a question. And I always get in trouble when I go down the path of uh, talking about providence. Um, I have been accused of not believing in the providence of God. And, and that I can assure you that's not true. So if you're not asking me a specific question about it, I am okay not <laughs> jumping headlong uh, into those waters. Um uh, let, I will say this though, unsolicited and not by your question, Melissa. Um, I do think the doctrine that we've been talking about here this morning, uh, and maybe that's maybe maybe you do too, because that, and that, that might be the reason for your uh, your comment. But I do believe the things that we've been talking about this morning, particularly as it comes to um, um, depravity and some of those other things, uh, I, I think the. Um, uh, the doctrine of providence and the work of God in the world today is shaped very much by the um, 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 very much by the um, views of depravity that exist in our current climate. Because the more depraved or more more fully depraved you believe the human spirit to do the less the human spirit can do on its own, right? Um, and you can hear it when people, even people that would not claim to believe in depravity or um, uh, any, any such thing, um, you know, where where I attend, I'm going to have to start saying where I preach at some, at some point, aren't I? But I'll still attend there, so maybe I can just keep saying where I attend. At the, at the Rockless Congregation, we have this wonderful man uh, just uh, always such an encourager, such a pleasant man to be around, older gentleman, um, and uh, just all kind of full of energy. I love being around the guy. But every time he prays, he says something along the lines of, Lord, help us do this, whether it's understand the Bible or whatever the specific application he's making, understand the Bible or be faithful or something and he always says, the phrase he uses every time is, help us do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the man, I think he's 81 or 82 years of age. And again, man's been studying the Bible longer than I've been alive. And, you know, he's not up there teaching really any doctrinal thing. It's just how he phrases it. I don't think he's, there's no reason to draw any lines of fellowship here to go back to Jonathan's question. I'm just going to, you know, Take the man's hand and say, hey, man, brother, good to see you this morning. Thank you for the prayer. Okay. But that kind of phraseology in prayers is built upon some measure of a belief in the depravity of the human spirit. That without some help from the Holy Spirit. Let's just go with the first illustration I used. Uh, not just this man in his prayer, but a lot of people I've heard pray. When they, when they, when they talk, pray to God about understanding the scriptures, they will make an appeal on some level to the Holy Spirit. In other words, we, on some level, we are going to need the Holy Spirit to help us understand God's Word, meaning we cannot do it fully, completely on our own. 
it takes some measure, some infusion of the Spirit's grace to help us understand um, his word, right? Or you hear this often. Something, some, somehow the, the phrase is used not about the um, understanding the word of God. It's used to, uh, you know, by, by with the help of your spirit or by the spirit's power or whatever, um, help us avoid sin. Help us to do your will. So either on the negative side, avoid sin, or on the positive side, uh, go off and do, uh, uh, you know, good, godly biblical things. Same doctrine. Same doctrine. There is, on some level, there is on some level, there is a thought that the human spirit is incapable of doing the thing that God asked us to do. And so therefore, we need the divine assistance of God to accomplish that task. Now, when we talk about providence, oftentimes, even very conservative brethren, when we begin to talk about providence, we begin to talk about it in that regard. The providence of God is going to help us do the will of God. And I don't believe that for a second. If that's what you mean by providence, then yes, I don't believe in the providence of God. I, that, that's, that, that is not, in my view at all, what, has, what is happening there. The job of doing God's will in this world is not his to infuse us with help to do his will. The job of doing his will is ours. Be faithful unto death. That's my job. And there is never a time when I am forced not to do his will because of some shortcoming of my spirit. Now, there might be a shortcoming of my devotion. There might be a shortcoming of my faithfulness. There might be a shortcoming of my motivation but not of my capability. At which point are you forced to, to tell a lie? At which point are you forced to, to lust after a, a, a someone who's not your spouse? At which point are you forced not to speak in his name? At which point are you forced? Go down the list. Now, I understand there are times we all fail, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about at which point do you lack the capability of knowing, to, knowing how to do that which is God's will? Never, unless you believe in some measure of depravity. If the human spirit is somehow handicapped because of the fall of Adam or whatever, then yeah, you would need some divine help. Um, I'm starting to run out of time, but let me, as I said, I wasn't going to get myself in trouble this morning. I, I just decided to jump headlong and get myself in trouble. Let me go over here to, to um, Genesis chapter 22. You want my view on providence? It's very simple. Adam, Isaac, heading up to the mountain all for the, all, all for the sacrifice, right? Abraham says to the young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship and come again. Abraham took the, burnt, the, 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 the wood, the burnt offering, and laid Isaac, his son, on it. Uh, and he took his hand in the fire. And so they both went up together. And Isaac said, uh, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Right? Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. The providence of God is not about making your life better. 
It's not about making your life better in the sense that if, if, if he will step in and direct your steps in some way, that you'll be able to do his will. The providence of God is God providing for himself. And if you want to benefit from the providence of God, I got a real good suggestion for you. You might want to find out what God is doing in this world and put yourself in that position. And if you're engaged in doing the will of God, and God is providing his, himself a way of his will to be accomplished in the world, you know what is going to happen to you? You might benefit from it. But if you don't pay your bills, if you don't pay your mortgage, the bank doesn't care that you're a Christian. Okay? If you go lie into your employer, the HR department is not going to care that you're a Christian. You go cheat on your spouse, your spouse is not going to care that you're a Christian. You're still going to get a divorce. God, that, that's not the providence of God to fix all that stuff. That's our job. God's job is to provide, to provide for himself. And along the way, Saul is in a shipwreck. Paul, rather, is in a shipwreck in, 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 in the you know, latter chapters of Acts, Acts 26, 27, 28, as he's traveling to Rome. Paul's in a shipwreck. Nobody dies. Why? Because God needed Paul to go to Rome. And all those people with Paul, got to stay alive because they were with Paul while God was providing for himself. Now, there came a time when God no longer needed Paul to stay alive, and Paul was put to death. Did the providence of God work one time and not the other? Nope, providence of God worked exactly the same in both places because the providence of God needed, needed Paul alive in one instance. The providence of God did not need God alive in the second instance. Put yourself inside the will of God, you've got the best chance of having the special blessings of God impact you. That's my view of it. And the reason that doesn't concern me is because I don't have this view that humanity is, um, I didn't realize, see, I'm learning this new platform. I didn't realize I was covering up my face just there. <laughs> hey, there I am back on the screen. Uh, but the, the providence of God Worked perfectly fine for Paul in both instances. And where it's not needed, I don't need it. Meaning that I have the capability of doing everything God wants me to do in my life. Okay? I, I just do. And so it's not that I feel any way, you know, so that God's not working with me and so on. It's just that. I, I, he's already told me everything I need to know to be faithful. And he never promised my life would be sunshine and roses all the time. Um, sometimes it's tornadoes and earthquakes. God's no closer to me or farther away from me in the sunshine of roses than he is with the torno tornadoes and earthquakes. So, I mean, I've got, a, I've got a very cut and dry view on it. And that's just the way I am sometimes. But I may have said more than y'all want him to say on that. But uh, anyway... Um, I guess that's about it. And I got nine o'clock right at the top of the hour here. So, um, um, let me go ahead and it's going to take me a second. This is all again, different for me. So I need to go ahead and let's take our break here and I will, um, put the overlay up and start the jingle. So people know we're still, by the way, that's the reason for the, uh, musical tracks during the start of the show and the break. I just want people to know that the stream is actually live. Otherwise, if you log in, it just looks like a static image. I want there to be actually something moving, something happening so people know if they happen to tune in during the break or 
in the pre-roll that, hey, this thing's actually about to happen. So uh, that's why that's there. And we're going to do that again. So let me put this up and mute my microphone here. And I think we should go. All right, everybody, welcome back to uh, From the Deep End, uh, second hour of the program beginning now. We are um, um, in a look at uh, the book of uh, uh, First Peter, and we will um, um, be pick that up again. We are still right in the very opening verses of First Peter, and let me go ahead and give me a second here. I'm still playing around with some of these things. Um, is there a way? Give me a second here. See, y'all are seeing this live on the air as I try to reshape and reframe my, my stuff. 
Because if I could do that, then I could actually be on the screen at the same time as... I'm not sure that's going to make it too small for me. This kind of stuff you should do off the air. Practice all this stuff off the air. Um, that might work. Let me, let me play with that for a minute. See if that see if that works. I do that. I think it's going to be too small. Well, let me see if that works. That should make this text the same size for you, although less of it's on the screen at the same time. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to read enough of the text at once to uh, make that work for me, but gets me uh, on the screen at the same time. Uh, how'd the sound go, by the way? Uh, we've been having trouble coming back from the uh, uh, from the break and the sound working. That's one of the reasons we're on the new platform this morning. So could y'all give me a, a heads up here real fast um, just before I get into this to make sure that the sound is uh, okay. Uh, and now I'll wait 25, 30 seconds for y'all to tell me that the sound is either okay or not. Um, Christine says it is good. Well, that actually came back fast. I wonder if the delay is less um, on this uh, using this platform. So anyway, uh, we are in First Peter. We uh, uh, right here in the opening of the book, um, and we had been talking here. We spent most of yesterday, at least a good point of yesterday, talking about the concept of uh, the uh, sanctification of the spirit, which is mentioned there in the uh, opening verses, and. Just by way of this introduction, uh, remember kind of where I was trying to get you to, to be with me on on the uh, on the verse here. Um, let me see if I can't. Sorry, I'm 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 doing this on the fly, um, trying to get. It. Let me know if that text is too small. It looks fine on a desktop. Of course, I'm staring staring at a 31 inch monitor in front of me, and you may have a five inch phone, so that may be. But if that if that size, text size works for people then this might be my setup because that is get, lets me see enough of the text at a, at a block that I think I'm be okay. So uh, let me know if that works for y'all or if that's too small. I can, I can bump it back up a notch if I need to. Um, but this, this first um, introductory portion here, I believe kind of sets the tone for the, um, um, for the, for the book here as a whole. Uh, remember what I said, and we pointed out each of the last uh, two days, and we'll do it again here in just a second. Uh, of course, now that I've changed the size of my screen, the pagination is different on the uh, the text. But uh, um, the various trials have come upon them. They have tested the genuine and the 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 the, um, uh, the testing of the faith is being, or the te the testing of the genuineness of their faith rather is being uh, is, is, is is ongoing right now. Uh, and Peter, first ch chapter five, verse number twelve says, hey, I've written to you that you might um, that you might um, have an appreciation that this is what, what I've delivered to you is is the true grace of God, and you need to stand firm in that faith. And so my understanding of this book is, again, that Peter's writing to a Jewish audience, that Jewish audience is going through the, the very opening phases, if you will, of the Great Tribulation. Um, but um, the... Um, the um, um, I'm oh, sorry, I was looking at your comments about the size of the text. I'm kind of getting mixed reviews as I read through that. So um, give, give me a minute. When I get something I need more pointedly, I'll probably blow it back up for you. But the um, the Jews of this era are starting to go through the early days of the Great Tribulation. They are uh, perhaps in doubt about the choices that they have made, uh, about their faith. And 
what Peter tells them in the opening of the book is that you are the elect. You, you are the ones who have done right. Nothing here has surprised God. It's all done according to his foreknowledge. And you have the, the identifying marks of the sanctification of the Spirit that we spent much of yesterday talking about. I don't have time to go back over that today. But, or I'm not going to take the time to go back over it today. Um, but the identifying marks of the sanctification of the Spirit, which I would tie to the miraculous, the prophetic powers of the first century. All of that is in the background of what you've taken. Now, then you also have kind of the um, confirmation of this at the end of the thought. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Okay, so you have then, obviously all of this is done in order to bring about your obedience before the Christ. Um, strange how the uh, biblical writers had a focus on the obedience to, to, to Jesus that maybe others did not have. Um, and also then with this, for the sprinkling uh, with his blood. Um, now, if, if I'm right again about the audience, um, if, I'm right, if I'm right about the audience, that the sprinkling with his blood, uh, it, that his audience is largely Jewish, this would obviously have a um, a direct um, um, a direct um, impact on their understanding of the uh, power of the offering of Jesus, because there was a time when the sprinkling of the blood was very much a part of their joint history, and I think this is probably. Uh, if not a reference to this exclusively, certainly a reference to um, this within their within their history, their combined, their, their common history. I take you back to Leviticus 16 here on the screen. And in Leviticus 16, you have, of course, the Day of Atonement, the national day in which, um, um, well, the day in which the nation came together for a collective offering for the sins of the nation. Uh, obviously, if an individual sins earlier in the book of Leviticus, if an individual sins, uh, he has to go down to the temple, make his offerings, and those offerings could be at the, you know, the point of whatever sin throughout, throughout the year and you know, perhaps on a, on a daily basis if need be. But the nation came together on the Day of Atonement, and on that day, there were two animals that were killed uh, for our purposes this morning. Starting in verse number six. Aaron takes the bull as a sin offering uh, for himself and makes atonement for himself in the house of God. And then he shall take two goats and set them before the, the Lord at the tent of the entrance. Cast lot over the two goats. Uh, one of those goats uh, he takes and he uses for a sin offering, verse 9. And the other one um, he takes and uh, presents it alive before the Lord, and it's going to be what we call the scapegoat. Now, so the Aaron makes uh, two two offering two, two animals that have blood involved. Third third animal, the scapegoat. We're focusing on the blood for a moment. So Aaron starts by making a um, sin offering for himself. He's make atonement for himself and for his house. He kills the bull as a sin offering for himself. So that has to be done first, because uh, obviously Aaron is a man. He has sinned himself before he can approach God. He's got to, he's got to have the offerings done for his sin and for then all the sins of his house, which would then, of course, uh, be the priest. You know, sometimes we uh, talk about the Levites the, the, the Levites being the priest, and, and yes, 
all the priests were Levites, but it is also important to remember that not all the Levites were priests. Uh, the, the tribe of Levi was responsible for the house of the Lord, but only within the family of Aaron, if things were working properly, did you then have the um, uh, the priesthood. So um, <clears throat> Aaron makes an atonement for him and his house, so for all of the priests. Um, and then he takes that offering with uh, two two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small, brings it inside the veil, puts the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony. So he takes the, he's got the blood offering. He's got the sin offering rather, which is a blood offering. He, he fills his censer full of coals off the fire. Uh, and that obviously is that censer, is that fire, those, uh, those, uh, those embers smolder. Uh, the smoke is going to rise up. He sticks that inside the veil, the veil, but separating the holy place from the most holy place and allows the room to fill up with smoke. So that when he goes in, he can't actually see the mercy seat because if he sees it, uh, he dies. So that's a problem. Uh, you know, I've often had the thought that they tie a rope to his ankle or something, because if he dies inside the most holy place, how do you get him out? <laughs> that's uh, uh, so anyway, but um, they takes he takes some of the blood of the bull and look what he does. He sprinkles it with his finger on in front of the mercy seat on the east side. Now, remember the tabernacle faced to the east. So he, he goes into the veil, and the first thing, well, he fills it with smoke, so he can't actually see the mercy seat. He takes some of the blood from the bull, and he sprinkles it between him and the, on, on, in front of the mercy seat on the east side. So on the ground, facing the path, uh, well, fa on the ground facing him, because he would be standing to the east looking west as he's entering the most holy place. And he covers that walkway, that small gap that would have been there between him and the, and the, and the actual Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat sitting on top so that his path to that is covered with blood, all right? Now, roll this forward, by the way. Roll this forward into the time of the temple. Solomon's temple stood for some 500 years. Uh, again, it's not like you can send a cleaning crew into the, um, into the temple. That veil is closed. Nobody can go in there except the high priest, and then only once a year. So that veil, some kind of heavy, heavy fabric, that veil is would have been over 500 years saturated with with uh, um, uh, the smell of the smoke, and think about the floor from that veil up to the to the most holy place. 500 years of blood being sprinkled on that path between the the veil and the mercy seat. You're going to send a crew in there with a mop. What are you going to do? You know, every time you see a picture of the mercy seat. Every time you see a picture of the Ark of the Covenant, it is just pristine, isn't it? It's clean. It's shiny. It's gold. No problems at all, right? If you touch it, you die. Uzzah learned that. Tell me, how do we clean it? How do we get that blood off of it? You tell me. Sprinkles blood in front of the mercy seat seven times. And then he comes back. He kills the sin offer, the goat of the sin offering. He brings this blood inside the veil and do with the blood as he did with the blood of the, the, the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And that's where atonement is made. And then, of course, the uh, scapegoat is, uh, uh, well, let me, let me skip down here to verse 18. 
Uh, verse 17, no one may enter the tent of meeting for the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and, his, and, 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 the, uh, and for his house and the assembly of Israel. He shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat, put it on the horns of the altar, so the altar burnt offering there, sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from uncleanness. And then he's made an end of atoning uh, for the holy place, the tent of meeting and so on. And then, of course, the scapegoat is sent away into the wilderness to carry away the sins of the people. Okay, that's the process on the Day of Atonement. So this idea of the sprinkling of blood is the time and the place where they would have made atonement. I think that's probably what's being referenced here uh, in in 1 Peter chapter 1. Okay, in 1 Peter chapter 1, you have the sprinkling of blood. Now, uh, you know, almost everything by the old law uh, uh, was... was, um, uh, sanctified by blood, that you know, that might be um, uh, part of it as well. But I think probably here, that's the reference. Because what I think is, what I think is going on here, is in this opening paragraph, what we are trying to establish, what Peter is trying to establish, is you who have done this, who have made this choice, you are in the true grace of God, and again, you are elected. This is according to the foreknowledge of God. You have the evidence of His blessings upon you. And it is by your obedience to Jesus Christ that you have gained access to the sprinkling of blood to make eternal atonement for your sins. You, you in, other, on the, in other words, by following Jesus Christ, by making the choice that you have made, you are wholly and completely doing the right thing. It is, it is 100% the true grace of God. You have made the right decision. Now, when Peter writes this book, there are still priests, uh, priest Hebrews eight, uh, Hebrews chapter eight. There are still priests on the face of the earth, still serving in um, um, Herod's temple, still making blood offerings on a daily basis, uh, and assuming the priesthood was functioning properly during that time, still making a daily, still making day of atonement offerings, and had been for the thirty years since Jesus had been there. All of that was still going on, and that would have been compelling to the Jewish mind. At some point, you start to wonder, have I done wrong? And I believe that's everything that that is in the background of this. And in his opening two verses, uh, Peter establishes very succinctly and I think very powerfully that the path that they are on, again, is absolutely uh, the the true grace of God. Um, Mimi says... um, could this also be said to the Gentile Christians to understand their inclusion into the family of God? Yes, yes, maybe it could, because everything that I just said that's true for the Jew would have also some, on some level been true for the Gentile. Uh, if now, the, as I said earlier, right, Peter is in the uh, in the introduction to the book two days ago talking about Peter's mission, given uh, to, to you know Peter and Paul and James there in Galatians chapter two, uh, the gospel to the circumcision was given to Peter. The gospel to the uncircumcision was given to Paul. Um, Peter's emphasis, his focus coming forth from that, and and I think part of his disposition as a whole was to be focused on uh, on the, the salvation of the Jews. So I think this is largely a Jewish book. Um, but yes, I mean, you read, you know, we're, we're talking to people in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, uh, you know, Galatia, you've got a book written there, the book of Galatians, Asia, Got several books written to Asia, primarily those written to Ephesus, um, and so the Book of Ephesians. And you read both in Galatia and in Asia, 
uh, obviously you've got Gentiles in the church. I mean, the large, the biggest distinction between um, uh, the book of Romans and the book of Galatians is the audience. The book of uh, Galatians is large, I think, largely written to Jew, to, to uh, Gentiles who are being compelled to be circumcised. I think the the book of Romans is largely written to Jews, uh, but it's over the same basic topic. That's why there's so much parallel or par- parallel structure between the two books. Now, Galatians, I don't think is exclusively written to Gentiles. Like chapter three in the early part of chapter four, that's Jewish, uh, but there are large there's large sections like the second half of chapter four and lots of chapter five. That would be, um, uh, if not exclusively Gentile, would be uh, uh, directed at, at, a, at a Gentile audience in, in more, in more, um, um, uh, more directly. So, yeah, uh, th- this would absolutely apply. And, and as this book, as this, as this book, even though it was written to the exiles of the dispersion, which is a Jewish expression, obviously people reading it, there'd be Gentiles in here. And if if those Gentiles have had enough exposure to Jewish teaching. As Acts 15 talks about that from ancient times, Moses has been read in the synagogues of these cities. Uh, that's James's argument as to why there needs to be some restriction on the activities of Gentiles. But if that's the case, they may have had enough background in, in, in Jewish practices to uh, understand the significance of what's being said here. So I wouldn't exclude just you know offhand that uh, this has no, um, no connection to Gentiles, but I think his audience is focused on the Jews. Okay, so that's the application I would make up is that he's he's trying to encourage Jewish brethren not to turn back at this point. But that does obviously there if if let me put it this way, we're Gentiles. If you had been in the in the Galatian churches and this letter shows up and you start reading it, and obviously it's from Peter, you know the connection to the to the Jews and so on. Uh if if it shows up, you might understand as as this letter starts to be read in the church of Galatia. Uh, you might understand that Peter's right, largely writing to issues that are facing the Jewish audience. But if you're sitting there listening to it, are you not going to try to find some way of making an application of this great text to you? Of course you are. So yeah, yeah, you would you would just as we do today. You know, we read a two thousand year old or nearly two thousand year old book, and we um, we read it with the with the um, um, uh, thought of over and over again. Well, what does this mean to me? And that—that's often our focus when we're studying it. So why—why why would, if even if this is a Jew book written to Jews, why would a Gentile Christian in any of those areas do anything other than what we do? Uh, what lessons can I learn from this? What is what is there in here for me? So they would be do they would they would be doing very much exactly the same thing that we we do with it. Uh, but anyway. Let's, let's get in the actual meat of the text. Of course, the uh, I guess I should mention this: uh, grace and peace be multiplied unto you. Um, again, that that's that's fairly standard uh, opening uh, to, to to the books. Uh, very very common for the era and so on. Don't have a lot to say there, uh, but just the that's the conclusion of the of the greeting of the lesson of the letter. So let's start looking at the actual verse number three. Um, First thing, the heading of the ESV says being born again to a living hope. Okay, I can live with that, I suppose, is the first point of the outline. Um, that's what we're about to talk about. We are about to talk about, and that started, that's said there in verse number verse number three, born again to a living hope. Okay. Um, that goes right in line with what it is that um, Peter has been arguing for. 
or what I believe that he's been trying to, well, not arguing for, but what he has been setting up in his argumentation for the book that follows. And he starts right there. We have been born again to a living hope. But he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, giving him thanks. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Paul starts very much the same way in the book of Ephesians. Actually, the language is almost identical in Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who has blessed us with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly, heavenly places, something along those lines. A praise of God, obviously that's necessary. Never wrong to start um, a uh, this a commentary of this uh, a a, a, um, um, a Peter's commentary on this topic that he's going to write about is what I mean, or a prayer in general, or just just a, a continued greeting to the people. This is always going to be a good place to start. In this setting, though, he is about to talk to them about various trials, the genuineness of the faith. We've looked at that. He's going to talk to them about this little while time frame that we're talking about. Um, he, he is starting with a strong appeal to, to them, a reminder to them about where they stand. And part of, I think, their hesitation, maybe part of the, the, the I don't know if doubt is the right word, but part, what, what, what Peter's trying to head off is that I believe he's fearful that they think something strange has happened to them. Chapter four, he says, don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial which has come upon you. Okay, and, and, and we start with an acknowledgement of the foreknowledge of God. So what's happening to you is not strange. It's not, it's not unanticipated. God knew it was coming. So the fiery trial was a part of the plan of God. This doesn't mean things have gone off the rails. This is all part of the plan. That to me makes this opening statement of the of the body of the text so very poignant. Instead of doubting, instead of thinking that things have gone wrong or whatever that case might be, understand you are you have the true grace of God, and you need to be praising and blessing God for what He has delivered to you, and what He has delivered to you, consistent with His nature, His great mercy. He has done this in accordance to his great mercy. So he has he has is has extended to you um, um, a, a a a blessing that is going to allow you to avoid future problems, right? Uh, you know, preachers when they define the distinction between grace and mercy, right? Um, mercy is the removal of a punishment. Grace is the adding of a benefit. So when you go into the court and the court says, you, you appeal to the court and you to ask the court to have mercy upon you, what you're asking the court to do is not punish you for your sin. All right? But when you are standing, say, on the street corner and you're, 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 one, you're, you're a panhandler, you're asking for, for, for a, a, a something to be given you, we're not just trying to avoid the negative. We're trying to alleviate and accentuate what we would say the positive. I don't just want someone not to punish me. I want somebody to give me a gift that improves my situation. So give me some money. Give me some food. Give me something to help me alleviate the pain that I'm in. That's grace. Mercy would be not punishing you for breaking the law. 
okay? According to his great mercy, here's what he has provided for you. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. What's the contrast? Why, you know, this is one of those, one of those things that, uh, you know, I, 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 I say to you often as we're talking about um, um, uh, studying the Bible. How does this verse read differently if it just says he has caused us to be born again to a hope? To a living hope. Well, what would be the other kind of hope? Well, it would be a dead hope. be a false hope. Huh. What might that look like? What might that look like? If the other hope is a false or a living hope or something of that nature, which, of course, is really no hope, what might that look like in the first century? What are your options? This is why I think it's so important to make sure you keep a verse, keep a book in its first century context. Because when I hear people talk about the living hope, I hear them talk about a lot of wonderful things. And, and again, it's one of those times where I'm not going to disagree with anybody when they talk about the living hope that Jesus Christ provides us. Not, not, not one of those, you know, heard lots of sermons that either deal with this verse or the conceptual, even heard several of them over the last couple of years on, on, on the Connect meeting we do at nights. And get to the end of those sermons, and I'm going to say, you know, great job. Wonderful thoughts there, man. Appreciate you. Thank you. Because, again, that's true. Everything would have missed. How often, though, do you stop and put that into a first century context? Don't lose sight already of what this book is talking about. You have to leave books in the first century. That's who they're written to. What are they thinking about doing? The fact that Peter has to tell them to stand firm in the true grace of God says to me that some of them were doubting that, and they thought that maybe there was a better path out there. Maybe, as the book of Hebrews says, maybe I should turn back. Maybe I should go another way. Maybe I should cast off my confidence. Instead of holding it firm until the end, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe there's another path out there that gets me out of these trials, these various trials that I'm in. See, that would be a false hope. That indeed would be a false hope. Okay? The living hope is the one that comes through the resurrection of, the, of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is the testimony to the, the legitimacy, the credibility of the choice that you've made. Your hope has power, your hope has life, because Jesus is risen from the dead. That's the evidence that you need to see. He rose from the dead. He ascended on high. We were witnesses of this. We have seen it. He's going to even make that point later in this same text. Verse 10, the prophets, they prophesied about of it. We are the ones who actually got to see it. Okay? We are the ones who preached that to you. 
Okay, The prophets talked about his suffering and the subsequent glories, which we have now seen. That good news has been preached to you, confirmed by the Holy Spirit. The angels have looked, tried to look into these things. What you have here is absolutely an amazing thing. It is the culmination of the fullness of the plan of God. It is the living hope, not the dead hope. Not, not those former things, which are a shadow and a type. This is the real article. This is genuine. This is the way you need to live, the way you need to follow. It is a living hope because he was raised from the dead. The glories, he participated in those glories. Even in the second, second epistle, uh, on some level, Peter comes right back to the topic as he, uh, let me scroll down to it, talks about very much the same things in the uh, opening 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 verses, verse three of Second Peter, his divine powers granted to us all things that pay, that uh, uh, pertain to life and godliness. You have become a partaker of the divine nature because of the great promises that he has given to you. And though he he says, therefore, I always intend to remind you of these qualities, this calling and election that you have to make them sure, to make them pure. I am trying to stir up your mind by pure ways of remembrance, since I know that the putting off my body will be soon, as the Lord Christ has made clear to me. And then he says to this, verse 16 is where I want to get to. Verse 10, the concerning this salvation, the prophets prophesied about it, the angels want to look into it. He comes right back to it in the second epistle. And he says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power in the coming of, our, of the Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from the Lord, or from rather he received honor and glory from the Lord, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, saying, this is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. We heard this very voice born from heaven, for, what, for we were with him on the holy mountain. This is the true grace of God. This is the genuine article. And Peter, you know, he gets to the second book and he says, listen, I know my time is short. It's coming. And I need you to understand before I leave the, the legitimacy of what you've done so that when I'm gone, you'll still be able to remember what it is that you agreed to, what it is that you followed. And that is where this, that's, this exhortation begins. This hope is alive. It's alive because we have the evidence to sustain it. He is risen. He ascended up into glory. We didn't follow cunningly devised fables or myths. We were there. We saw it. We were eyewitnesses to his majesty. The prophets prophesied and foretold exactly what was going to happen. This was all done according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's, it's supported by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what this is talking about. And it is put in direct contrast to every other hope that would have been in that ancient world, and primarily to a Jewish audience, uh, I mean, I, I, it was it was the, it was the turn back into Judaism. Um, just turned on a whole bunch of stuff right there. I didn't mean to. Let me um, let's go over here. I, I, I keep referencing Hebrews here because I think the uh, the end of the book of Hebrews is. Um, Give me just a second. I turned on a whole bunch of stuff I didn't mean to turn on. Um, there you go. I got all, I got all my notes in the background. I usually turn them off when I have the program on because 
I've got so much color and stuff on the screen, it can be distracting. So the opening chapter of 1 Peter 1, though, now, now that I got that cleared up, opening chapter of 1 Peter 1, oh, it just, it, it when I read it, I hear Hebrews 10, uh, maybe a little bit of Hebrews 12, okay? Um, Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the new and living way that he opened through us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, for obedience to Jesus, for the sprinkling of the blood, here's the great high priest over the house of God, we have a living hope. The Hebrews writer says we have a new and living way. The parallel between Hebrews 10 and 1 Peter 1 especially is so strong to me. And so his argument here is, let us draw near with a true with a, a true heart. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. There's our word hope again. Never wavering, for he is faithful to his promise. Let us consider how to stir one another up to, to, to love and good works, especially as you see the day approaching. We haven't gotten to it in 1 Peter yet, but he's going to talk about the time has come. Judgment's going to begin at the house of God. Same motivation, same basis. High priest, sprinkling of blood, the thing our way is living, our hope is living. Hold fast your confidence. Consider, stir one another up. The first command of the book of Peter, gird up the loins of your mind. Get prepared. Get ready for action. The language is exactly the same, or the imagery is exactly the same. Now, skip down here to verse 32. He says, Recall the former days when you were after you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, just as Peter talks about the, the, the various trials that you're in, sometimes being publicly exposed to re, re, reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. We haven't gotten there yet, but read First Peter chapter 4. If any man suffer, let him suffer as a Christian. Okay, You had comp compassion on those in prisons. You had fully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. All right, it's the true grace. Stand fast in it. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Don't give up yet. Gird up the loins of your mind. Get ready for action. Be sober. Be vigilant, which has, which has a great reward. Okay, um, I, I need to go back over First Peter for this one. Which has a great reward. We have, we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the dead. We have a great reward over there. An inheritance that is un imperishable, undefiled, not fading away, kept in heaven for you, who by the who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Same language, okay? You have your confidence has within it. Just scroll back down here. Your confidence has within it a great reward. You have your confidence has a reward. What you have is need of endurance. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be ready for action. When you have done the will of God, you will receive what is promised because yet a little while, and the one that is coming is going to come. Okay? Look what Peter says over here in 1 Peter 1. Um, in this you rejoice, though for not now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by trials. The similarity between Hebrews 10 and 1 Peter 1 is so striking to me. And he says to them down here at the end, the one who's coming will come and not delay. 
but my faith, but my righteous, my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Do not throw away your confidence. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith to the preservation of the souls. That's what I'm trying to get you to see. A Jewish audience in roughly the same time frame as the Jewish audience in the book of Hebrews. Their geography is probably different. I believe the book of Hebrews is probably written to Jews living in Jerusalem. And so they're at the focal point of all of this tribulation. But Peter says in 1 Peter 5, the same afflictions that are happening to you are being accomplished in your brethren throughout the world. So the same circumstances, the same environment surrounds the saints in, in, in Asia Minor and, and, and all of that area that we talked about. Same environment is there. Same temptation is there. And so when you read this phrase, living hope, or at least when I read this phrase, living hope, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I get all the, like I said, as I said earlier, I, I get all the sermons that we preach about the living hope and, and, and all of the great things that we have said about the living hope and all of that. I get it. And I'm not in any way trying to, uh, to diminish those sermons or those lessons. They're all, as I said earlier, they're all valid. They're all wonderful. They're all great. But when I read the word living hope here, I'm thinking Hebrews 10. I'm thinking back in Hebrews chapter um, what is it? Hebrews chapter six, is it? Um, Hebrews chapter six, after he says at the end of five, uh, when the time has come that we need to, um, 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 the time has come where we ought to be teachers or you ought to be teachers. You haven't some, you have need that some will teach you again, the, um, um, first principles of the gospel of Christ. He's the, he then, the Hebrews writer says in chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. There is your statement of dead works. Okay, what he's talking about here, if you read what's going on, you have instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, and, and so on. He's talking here about things that are in the past. He, he's talking here about a, a, a Jewish principles. And he refers to them as dead works. Okay, I, I understand there are some people out there. I really understand there are some people out there who um, um, think the Old Testament's full of dead works. I'm not one of them. When when the day of it, we just in the uh, in the opening of this hour, we just went to Leviticus chapter 16, and we spent some time looking at the uh, the the uh, specifications, the requirements for the Day of Atonement in First in, in Leviticus 16. And let me ask you a question. Okay. Um, Aaron is said to do that. So when that was first given, Aaron was still the high priest. And for the first number of years that the Levitical order was in it intact, Aaron, on, on, on the Day of Atonement, went into the whole, most holy place, sprinkling the blood for the bull, of the bull and of the goat on the mercy seat. And he came out, he sprinkled the blood on the altar, he sprinkled the blood on the scapegoat, the scapegoat went into the wilderness. If you had been standing there, and you had been one of those who was participating in the first Day of Atonement ceremony, would you have for one instant thought that was a dead work? Of course not. You would have think that is the that you would have thought that was the most magnificent thing you had ever seen. We just have we just atone for the sins of the entire nation in one ceremony. Good people, that's not a dead work. It's not. You know what made it a dead work? When that day of atonement offering was superseded by a better offering. 
Hebrews chapter 10, the first part of Hebrews chapter 10 that we didn't read. Not possible that blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. We have a better offering, a more perfect offering. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14, for by one offering, not the repeated offerings of the daily sacrifice and the day of atonement, but by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Or, or yeah, those who are being sanctified. It's a better offering. And that better offering makes that, that, that lesser offering a dead offering. And you're trying, the Hebrews were trying to turn back to that. And they were trying to lay again a foundation that was crumbled. That which is old, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. That which is old and decaying is ready to vanish away. It's dead because Jesus ripped the heart out of it. When he fulfilled the, we fulfilled the, 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 the law, he fulfilled everything that, that it was trying to accomplish. It was a shadow. It was a type of good things to come. And Christ is not the shadow. He is the reality. It no longer had efficacy. It no longer had power. It was no longer living. But there was a time when it was living. God commanded it, and it had efficacy. It had the power to forgive sins. That's what the book of Leviticus says. We've looked at it in the times past here on this program. Go to Leviticus chapter 4, Leviticus chapter 5, and over and over again, you read through those offerings, and, it, and the book, the Bible says, make the offering, and, it, and, and, and their sins shall be forgiven. Their sins shall be forgiven. Their sins shall be forgiven. I mean, the Bible doesn't hint at it. The Bible just comes right out and says it. Their sins shall be forgiven. Not once Jesus is here. They're dead works. It's a dead foundation. And you're trying to lay it again. The hope that we have is living and active. And when you get later into the book of Peter, you're going to see that the word that we have obeyed is living. It's active. Same thing the book of Hebrews says about the word of God. Two edged short. It's amazing. If you've never taken the time to look at the parallels between First and Second Peter, or First Peter and the Book of Hebrews, you really need to. Now, I don't, I, I don't, I don't believe that Peter wrote Hebrews, but he could have. I think Peter's dead by the time the Book of Hebrews is written, so he's not on my list of potential candidates for Hebrews. But boy, buddy, he could have written Hebrews. You need to make the connection here. If you've never done it before, you really need to make the connection between the book of Hebrews and 1 Peter. If I said that yet, yeah, and I think I've said that once or twice so, so far this morning, guess what? We're going to say it again throughout this study because it is there. So here's our living hope. All right. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Obviously, that's the basis of it. Uh, you can go to 1 Corinthians 15 uh, and all of it. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Um, and that's that simple. There, there, there's no, there, there's no uh, 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 other way to think about it. Um, you know, I've heard people say in the past that um, um, I think I've probably said this in the past to you. Some some of the classes we've had, but um, you know, man, I've heard people say, well, Christianity is just the best way of living anyway. That's not what Paul says. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, Paul says, if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, if there is no resurrection of the dead, we are still in our sins, and we are of all men most pitiable. The foolish way to live, Christianity is, if there's no hope, if there's no Jesus. It doesn't make any sense. It's not rational. But since he, did, he, is, he, excuse me, since he is raised from the dead, we have a living hope. Now, specifically, um, as I say, don't, don't be in a hurry. You, you hear what I just said? We have a living hope. 
Okay, yes, we do. We absolutely do have a living hope. But you, did you hear what I just did? And we do it all the time. And I, 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 just, I was just guilty of the thing I tell you don't be good, don't do. I just, I just modernized that text, and I made the living hope here about us. Now, as I said, we have a living hope. That's not Peter's point here. Peter's point here is trying to distinguish the true grace of God from, from the counterfeits of the first century. The counterfeits of the first century primarily would have been Jewish, and they don't have this. This is an evidentiary statement. It's not an emotional statement. He's not trying to evoke uh, uh, what, what we might do when we make use of this phrase is, and, and you know, have some kind of uh, uh, internalized response to, to, the, to the love of Jesus and, 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 uh, the, the, and, and so on, the love, the love of Jesus and the sacrifice that he made for us about, about the resurrection. That is, again, that is all true. And, and as I said, the hope that we have is sustained by that. The resurrection is still a factual truth. It's still a historical truth. All of that is still true. And one more time, I'm not going to argue with people that make that. In fact, I just did the very thing that I'm talking about. We have a living hope. That's not the point here. The point here is not about the, 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 the emotion that should be evoked, the gratitude that we ought to have toward the Christ for the resurrection, for the sacrifice, and so on. We ought absolutely to have all of those things. What's being, what, is, what, is, what is being accomplished here by the use of that phrase is a statement of evidence. Christianity is different than, well, in this instance, Judaism. If I do modernize it, it is still different than every other religion because of this one undeniable truth. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and because he's raised from the dead, Christianity is true. And since it is true, it's living. And since it is living, to go back up to the opening of the verse, or the opening of the book, you are, you, you Jews of the dispersion, you Christians who have been dispersed, Acts chapter 8, through the world, you are the elect of God. Not your countrymen who are still offering the sacrifices of the Day of Atonement. You are the true people of God. Your hope is living because he was raised, All right? Now, at least let me get through this next, this, I'm not, I'm not even going to get through this full sentence by the time the, the time catches me. Um, um, boy, I'm not, let, let, let me, what time is it? I've got 9.51, okay. Uh, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, uh, kept in heaven for you who are being, who by God's power are being guarded through a faith uh, for, for, for a salvation. Let me stop there. Okay. Um, maybe tomorrow we, we will come back and, 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 and actually look at the, the breakdown of some of these words. Cause I need, to, I got a couple of comments in there. I need to get to before time catches us here. Um, but a resurrection that through, through Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, that inheritance is let's, let's skip the imperishable undefiled and unfading. We'll come back to that tomorrow. Let's skip that and just catch the next part. An inheritance kept in heaven for you, okay? This inheritance is kept in heaven. Now, again, draw a distinction between the two covenants that we're talking about here. The Jews who would be reading this book absolutely understood the concept of their having an inheritance from God. They would have read the Old Testament law. They would have read the Pentateuch that they would have read all of the promises, particularly of the book of Deuteronomy, 
as Moses is giving those speeches, and he talks to them time and time again about all of the uh, uh, the blessings that are going to come. You know, I'm sure you know the passages. You'll you know you'll live in houses you didn't build. You'll you'll eat of vineyards you didn't plant, and so on. All, uh, it, it, you'll have no poor among you. Uh, I won't add to you any of the diseases of Egypt. I'm sure you can come up with some of those other phrases from the book of Deuteronomy as well. They understood the concept that they had an inheritance. They were the sons of Abraham, um, and that you know that 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 thought would have never entered their brain that they did not have an inheritance. The challenge here is, particularly as storm clouds are beginning to surround Jerusalem and surround the nation of Israel, the 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 important thing here is to get their eyes lifted to a different spot, because think how difficult it would be if as a you know, it's AD, what, Paul, Peter writes, which, which one to date it? I think the ESV here dates First Peter at 64. Let's go with it. Let's go with AD 64, okay? In six years, the capital city of your nation and all of the outlying regions are going to be destroyed. By five years later, is it Masada is about 75, 76, something like that. I'm doing that, that, that off the top of my head. I could be off by a couple of years there. But the last Jewish stronghold to hold out against the Roman armies was Masada, by, by, certainly by AD 80. Essentially, the entire Jewish infrastructure, the entire Jewish nation is gone, but particularly in the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, when the capital falls, when the temple falls, your identity is gone. Your inheritance is gone. Now, in time past, when that happened, you had Jeremiah saying, in 70 years, you'll come back. You had Isaiah saying that Cyrus, my shepherd, will build, rebuild the temple of the Lord. You had Ezekiel talking about Israel and Jacob, Israel, uh, um, uh, um, um, uh, Israel and Judah being put back together in the Valley of Dry Bones, coming back to life. You had promise upon promise upon promise that God would bring back the remnant. What's different about this is that God never sent a prophet to Israel saying, you're coming home. In fact, he said just the opposite. He said, when Jesus came, this is Malachi chapter 4, he said, when Jesus comes, the son of righteousness with healing in his wings, boy, that sounds great. Let me have some of that son of righteousness with healing in his rings, wings. He also said, he's going to burn the earth and he will not leave root nor branch. There will be not even stubble left. That's the difference. Now, if you're a Jew, again, reading this book, and you see the storm clouds surrounding Jerusalem, and you're being reminded, as Peter will say later in his writings to the same party, to the same group, do not forget the predictions of, of, of Jesus, of his apostles and the prophets, that in the last days, last time, scoffers will come. Don't forget that. You're reading, being reminded of those promises of the coming and pending judgment. And what's the message? The message is, this is the end. The temple's going down. Not one stone's going to be left upon another. And where the carcass is, Jesus says, the vultures gather. That's Matthew 24. Peter has to get his audience to understand something. He has to get his audience to understand the inheritance that is part of the living hope is not in Jerusalem. It's in heaven. And we'll get to it tomorrow, but the revelation of that inheritance, the revelation of the, the nature of that salvation is ready to be revealed. Just hang on. 
what you're looking for, what you're waiting for is coming. Just hang on. Gird up the loins of your mind. That's, again, the first command of First Peter. Down there in the next paragraph, prepare your mind for what's coming. Be ready. All right, we're going to stop right there in terms of moving forward in the text. I've got a couple of comments that I need to get back to. Let me see what I have over here. Um, several. Um, let's see what we have here. I'm going to go through this as quickly as I can. Uh, Mimi says, um, uh, during the trials and tribulations, you learn to trust God and gain strength to persevere. There's hope shining in the true knowledge of God's word. This knowledge and faith is uh, gained help in the work of evangelism. That 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 is a good point there at the end, uh, Mimi. Uh, it, a lot of evangelism, a lot of the ability to tell others about what, what is going on is tied directly to um, um, the confidence that we have um, from the application and understanding of God's word. Absolutely great point. Uh, she goes on to say, I'm seeing 1 Peter 1, 2 through 9, directing the minds of his audience from their physical problems to a spiritual focus of hope with God's grace. Um, yeah, that, that, that's certainly part of it. They are, they are going through uh, some various trials. Their faith is being tested. And the the appeal from Peter is, again, lift your eyes up. You're, 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 the things that are happening to you and to your countrymen, to your nation, uh, th those things are not evidence of God's either favor or disfavor upon you. Your evidence is based upon his promises. Your evidence is based upon his revelation according to the foreknowledge of God and that that evidence, that that um, that, that inheritance that is ultimately reserved in heaven for you. For you. Absolutely, Mimi. That's great. Um, Gita asks, um, um, could there be a parallel with Romans and Peter with respect to staying on focused on God and warning that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and trouble is coming? I, th th I believe there is. I mean, th th thematically, and this is something that I, I think we miss a lot of Bible teachers miss um, um, because, again, we are in such a hurry to make things apply to the 21st century. I, that, that to me is the, you know, I, obviously I've got doctrinal differences with preterist and futurist and, and Calvinist and free will people and, and all of that. And I've got, you know, you, we've talked about that at length. But I don't think any of those is the systemic problem for a lot of the difficulties we have in coming to a, a, a unified understanding of the New Testament. If, if beyond just spiritual um, uh, sensitivity, maybe, you know, being good, being good soil versus not good soil, beyond just that, of those people who are honestly trying to understand the Bible, I think this is the biggest problem we have, and that is a failure to leave things in the first century. Let first century things talk to first century people and quit trying to make everything about the future. Now, having said that, what I mean by that is, you know, you want to you want to draw a parallel between Romans and Peter? Absolutely, you can. Absolutely, you can, because at Romans fifteen, Romans sixteen, uh, Romans eight, all of those passages deal with the same thing that Peter. They deal with the Great Tribulation. Okay, the evil day of the Ephesians six, Great Tribulation, the day of redemption, Ephesians four, day of redemption. Same thing in Colossians, the the spoiling of the principalities and powers in Colossians two. Um, um, uh, the whole book of Revelation, though, these are those which are coming out of the Great Tribulation. Pick a book. It's in there. Uh, the book of James. The, 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 the behold, the judge is at the door. Uh, that was at James chapter, is that five or four? First part of five. First part of five. Um, same language is there in the first part, first part of James 5. So over, over again, there's always a parallel that can be drawn. So yeah, I, I would agree with that completely. I, I think... I like the I like the parallel structure, not not, not thematically, because there's a, there's a a thematic parallelism that runs through essentially every book of the New Testament. 
but I like the, I like the linguistic and thematic or a, a, a structural way of uh, of the similarity between First Peter and Hebrews. That's why I went there. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't have any problem. You know, sit me down and make me do it for thirty minutes, and I'll I'll, I'll give you a list of verses in First Peter that have a parallel passage in Romans. You could do that without without much effort at all. Absolutely. Uh, Travis says, I don't recall you dating the book. My brain fuzzed it. Uh, did you just say, did you just say you believed it around, uh, be around 64? Um, uh, Travis, I was just going with, let me scroll back up there and put it back up for you. Um, yeah, the, 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 just the standard intro to the ESV puts it around in the mid sixties. I don't have, I don't have a specific date for first Peter. Um, I, I think what did I, we, we pulled up, I showed you some introductory stuff from Jameson Fawcett and Brown and from, um, uh, the Bible knowledge commentary, maybe one of those said 64. Um, uh, second Peter 68 offered, uh, he doesn't actually give a date, does he? Um, no, he doesn't actually give a date. Does the Bible knowledge commentary give a date? Um, am I still in Jude? I'm in Jude. Uh, so that must not be it. Um, I don't, I don't remember where I said, I don't remember where I got that from Travis, but I don't have a specific date. I would put it sometime in the mid sixties. Um, I don't think you can get it much, much earlier than that, given the tone of it, you know, the fiery trial statement, the time has come statement at the, at the end of first Peter chapter four. Uh, so I don't think you can get it much earlier than mid sixties. So, I mean, I'd be good with 64, but if you want to tell me it's AD 63 or AD 66, eh, okay, I'm good with that. Um, I just don't think I have a, um, I'm not, I'm not one of these guys that gets particularly um, anal about dating. I, I do think, you know, revelation is important to get the basic date right. A few things like that, but I'm not particularly caught up on dates. Uh, just get me in the general ballpark and, and we'll be good. So I said 64 just because I, 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 somewhere in the prep work I did for this class, somebody gave me a date of 64 and I can't remember where I read it. I went with that because that was the date that popped out of my brain. So anyway, um, that's about all we've got. And so I will stop because I'm already three minutes long. But um, thank you for uh, your participation, as you always do. That is um, well appreciated um, and look forward to being back here with you. Um, we will be back on, or Labeth Brewer will be back on for the Mindful Soul. She'll be on our Facebook and YouTube pages um, at 2 o'clock. Uh, for another episode of that. Uh, and if you have not, please check out, uh, well, do it in about an hour or so here. Uh, we've been announcing our Spanish language meeting that's going to be taking place uh, June 13th through 17th from 8 a.m. or 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. Uh, Eastern, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday of that week. Uh, Marlon Ratana is helping us organize that, and he has a list of men who are going to be on with him. I do not know all of their names as of yet. He has not given me that list. Um, and then also uh, that, by the way, you can find the advertisement for that on our Facebook and our locals page currently. Um, and in about an hour or so, once I get this, this, this show wrapped up and processed and all of that, I will be posting the advertisement for the weekly program that goes along with that gospel meeting, if you will, that Brother Marlin is going to be starting for us, I believe this coming Friday. And it will run at five o'clock Eastern time on Friday afternoons, Friday evenings. So there will be an advertisement for that posted here uh, within, well, by lunchtime or so uh, today. And that will again be on our Facebook timeline. And you can find that also on our locals page. 
uh, please consider going over to our locals page. That's where we're really trying to create a lot of community and interaction type things. And that is, again, digitalbiblestudy.locals.com. So I will sign off for today, and we will see you back here, Lord willing, uh, tomorrow morning. Actually, I won't be back with you tonight because we're not on tonight. Uh, But next time I I will see you, we'll be back here at um, um, 8 o'clock tomorrow morning for uh, From the Deep End. Um, let me know what you thought about the new platform. We, it, it, it seems like it ran better for me, and I don't know if that's platform-based or if I changed something else, but I think the audio came through better on the, on the stream. It's funny, our, um, uh, the audio stream, the, the Podbean, a live stream that we do each time we're on, each time I'm on anyway, uh, was not having an issue with the audio. It, I, I went back and I listened to some of those broadcasts, and it was fine. So it was just something coming across StreamYard, and I don't know... It's weird because the audio feed uh, on the the audio feed takes the feed off of my browser. I, I, don't, I don't send it through the microphone. I send it through the browser to Podbean. So I don't know what the deal is there, but hopefully it worked out better today. Um, anyway, I need to stop talking and sign off because I'm already long. So anyway, thank you once again, and we will see you back here, Lord willing, tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. for the next episode of From the Deep End. Go out and make a day great one for God, everybody. See you back here tomorrow.